Welcome to Circuit Break from MacroFab, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and reverse polarity LED indicators. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Stephen Craig and Parker Billman. This is episode 403. Circuit Break from MacroFab. All right. So this week, we're bringing back Chip of the Week as a topic. More on that later. Uh, and then personal projects. All right. So let's uh, jump right into Chip of the Week. So uh, Moby, I love this. I love his, his name. Mobius Striptease in our uh, new discourse brought up that we haven't done Chip of the Week in a while. And with our new long-lasting persistent format, persistent format of the, our form, we can actually properly do like chip of the week and make it searchable and that kind of stuff. Mobius found this component that is kind of crazy. It's the LT30. You know what? Linear devices or analog, because they got bought by analog, is probably going to dominate chip of the week, I bet. <laughs> just because they have cool stuff. They just have cool stuff. But this is the lt 3073 and it is a programmable low dropout regulator that has some of the craziest features I've ever seen in an LDO. Basically it combines like four or five different chips into one chip. It has a lot of really cool features and the way okay so analog actually their description is 3 amp ultra low noise high PSRR 45 millivolt dropout ultra fast linear regulator if that gives any kind of indicator of what's going on here. Basically, it's take a three-terminal regulator and add a boatload of features to it and make everything great, and this is it. <laughs> well, it's not just it's an LDO. Yeah. It also has a precision current monitor that can talk back to your microcontroller. It also has a built-in current limiter that you can adjust, and you can even set it with, like, a resistor. So you don't have to... You don't have to connected to a microcontroller to program that part. It has programmable output voltage based off of resistances on terminals. Yes. Yeah, and it has a current output as well. So you can, based on a resistor that you tie to one pin, you can actually get output current data right out of this thing. So we were talking about this component on our uh, on our discourse, and uh, Space Matt is going to send it to get radiation tested. I absolutely love that. Yes, that's really cool. I am probably never going to use this part because <laughs> it's $11 uh, and I don't really have a... It is a bit... It, yeah, I think that's the one downside of it. It is pricey. I mean, most stuff from linear tech is pricey, but you got to think of it is doing basically the work of four chips slash components in one. And so if you need all these features and a small footprint... That's the way to go. Yeah, the two big guys, DigiKey and Mauser, it's not even in stock at either one of them right now. Oh, it was in stock at Mauser last I checked. Oh, well, maybe someone bought it all out. But but I do really like the current monitoring thing is really big for me because that as you know, I don't know what kind of accuracy. I didn't look at the accuracy that it gives, but depending on that, that alone, that feature combines you know, a whole secondary IC inside of this that, you know, as long as you can spare an A to D channel, that alone is a really big thing for me is being able to monitor current out of this easily. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And yeah, that's what I'm saying is if you are 
strapped for space on your, your circuit board, that chip solves a lot of your problems. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, so I got the data sheet up, and there is a pin that says temp. It has a temperature monitor on it as well? I got to look this up real quick. Uh, I don't know if it does or not. It says temperature monitor in the description. Okay, the temperature pin outputs a voltage proportional to the average junction temperature. Okay, so you can monitor it as it goes and just, you know, see how hot it's getting effectively. So it's not like <laughs> it's it's not like a, a good temperature monitor or or a temperature sensor, but it gives you junction temperature, which okay, that's cool. Well, can you program it over its communication bus for current? Well, no. Okay, so the thing is, this it, it doesn't actually have a communication bus. It's not digital. It it just has programmable pins. I'm using air quotes there. Oh, okay. That are like selector pins based off of if you float them, pull them high or pull them low. Okay, so you still can hook them up to a microcontroller and toggle them. You could, yeah, you're correct. You could you could toggle them, and that that gives you access to output voltage effectively or modifying the output voltage on it. So yeah, I don't. It doesn't have smarts inside. No, I wonder what you would use that temperature monitor for. I guess making sure that like your rail is not going to just thermally shut down on you. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm not sure. Make seeing how close you get to some kind of thermal shutdown. I I don't know what the usefulness of a thermal pin on this IC itself would be. Because couldn't you just figure that out using the output current? Well, I guess it depends on how, what, what math you want to do, right? You could either monitor the temperature directly or you could calculate it. Yeah. Footnote four, <laughs> the first chart, uh, says the temp output voltage represents the average temperature of the LT3073's power devices due to power dissipation, temperature gradients, and the thermal time constants across the die. The temp output voltage measurement is not guaranteed to precisely track transient power excursions in the power device. That's cool. I, w I wish I was the engineer that got to write that. <laughs> it's just basically saying, you know, fast transients, you're not going to pick those up. No, but I would say if you were reading that, you could see if your rail was about to like, you know, totally just dip out on you. You could just like, you know, hey, you're too hot. It's the environment's too hot, so we're going to save our data and just shut down because it's oh, we're about to lose our data or something like that. That's what I would use it for. Yeah, yeah. I I do wonder how much self heating of the IC would uh, throw that off, though. You know, because if you're using it to sense environmental temperature, no, no, no. It's not for environmental. Well, it is, but what I'm saying is... Specifically for the IC. There's a temperature that this device shuts down at. Correct. It has its own internal shutdown to keep it safe. Yeah, and you can see how close you are to that effectively. Yeah, you can see how close you are and be like, hey, it's pretty hot. You know, we should probably, hey, save our data or do something, you know, especially if it's like a safety device or something. You know, instead of just, it, just turning off on the operator or whatever, you can at least be like, hey, it's hot. Do something about it. <laughs> okay. So so say you had another temperature sensor somewhere elsewhere on the board that was sensing ambient. You could see what your maximum, you could see what the chip is currently running at. You could compare it against ambient and that would tell you how much output current you would be able to withstand before you go into thermal shutdown. 
So that's kind of cool. You could do that kind of a comparison. Yeah. I bet you it was because it's using like a 20 pin IC, 22 pin. Oh, man, it's not even a square QFN. It's an LQFN. Ugh. Those are not my favorite. No, the, those stands for loser quad flat. <laughs> <laughs> What's the end? N is like no pin or no lead. Quad flat, no lead. QFN, right? Yeah, no lead. Yeah. Loser quad flat, no lead. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's got the, the not castellated, but the under the, the little... I don't know, the pads on the underneath. And then it has, in the center of it, it has two separate, I, I usually call them ground pads, but they may not be ground in this situation. No, because they're not. Yeah. Are those outputs? This, okay, this part is a nightmare. I'm seeing this as machine. This is a nightmare to assemble because the in pad and the out pad are on the inside, The like the two ground pads. Yeah. They're in and out. Or the thermal pads or whatever you call them. Yeah. The thermal pads. So the good thing is the inside has like three pins that go out too. So like you would probably make one big fat trace that would go out from that thermal pad. Same thing for the outside. So the inside and outside are symmetrical. So the really one of the only ways to utilize this chip is to just put via in pad. No, no, no. You don't need via in pad. Yeah. How do you escape power out of this thing? So three on the short side of the rectangle. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. So, so it has in and out as pins on the peripheral paths. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I see it now. At first I thought it didn't have that. So the only way to use this in my mind was you had to like plunge up and then go back down out of it. That would have been crappy. Well, so the reason why I'm saying this would be hard to assemble is those ground, those center pads are really close together Mm -hmm. and you always get like some squish when you like do the solder paste. And so if you're out there and using a part like this, go ahead as the designer and just like window the snot out of that paste aperture and center there. This is a fantastic example of where paste uh, aperture reduction is really helpful. Yeah, on those centers for sure. Especially because if this shorts, that's no bueno. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Everything down this thing is supposed to power is immediately going to blow up. <laughs> Just roasted. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that actually it begs the question is, this would be a great, if you have a board that is using this, you would definitely either have, if your CM has it, you'd have to have them flying probe the assembly and check the continuity across in and out to make sure there's none. Or part of your initialization startup test cycle is to just test the continuity across that either in your fixture or whatever. Yeah, that would be a, that would be a smart move because yeah, if you apply power to this and something critical is downstream and that's shorted. Mm. Given how low noise is, it's probably like an $80 FPGA. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, uh, in, up at the top of the data sheet, it suggests under its applications a lot of expensive stuff, including FPGAs. Yeah. And actually, down in the, the, the package information stuff, it does give a suggested footprint, but it does not seem to have aperture window suggestions for paste. Yeah. 
So that's, yeah, this, this would be a good one to actually apply that to. Yeah, window it a lot. Window, yeah. And your CM, depending on the CM, they, you know, a macrofab has the ability to automatically do that, right? To adjust your windows on that. And, yeah. and that might be something that you get. But, you know, if you just leave them full window, that would be a ton of paste underneath a part like this. Yeah, even if it, if you left it full windowed at Macrofab, we would probably build it that way too, though. Yep, yep. Now, if you made that mistake, if you... You might suggest changes. If you were like, hey, I need to reduce it, we can reduce it on the fly right? Uh, with our machines. But if you left it fully windowed, we're totally going to probably just do it full windowed. But this is definitely a reduction on those center pads for sure. I would do full pace on the perimeter ones. And then for the grounds and the the power in power out i think uh pins is just maybe even like 50 percent window yeah or you know dots like within the pad two or three windows yeah i i call it like screen dooring yeah 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 mesh or whatever i i do that a lot actually even on like even if it's a big ground pad i always do that and then i always this would actually probably be good application for it too is actually put a via and pad there to help suck even more paste out and keep it from outgassing and, you know, moving the chip around. Yeah. D does the, does their suggested layout just suggest via in pad? Maybe it does. For those, I don't know if it does or not. Uh, well, okay. So they have an image of one of the layers of an evaluation board and it looks like they did put at least on one side of the chip, they put uh, four vias in there. So that would suck a ton of paste away. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right there. Do you suggest in general reducing near paste apertures? Only for center pads. Yeah. Well, I would call like a captured pad like this. Captured. I like that. I always reduce mine, even if it's just like a normal ground pad or anything like that. I always reduce them. Well, I always do the screen door, right? Yeah. Like multiple little small dots. It, at the end of the day, that is a reduction, right? Yeah, it is a reduction, but it, I think it helps spread it out yeah. when the part goes down. I actually have no evidence of that. <laughs> it just feels like it does. Well, it doesn't seem to concentrate the paste in one location. Yes, yeah. I agree, yeah. Because it is still, if you just do a, like a 20 or 30% reduction, it may be that the paste doesn't smear to the edge of the pad. Once again, <laughs> don't have evidence there, but... Yeah, I'm not really concerned about that happening on my designs. Mostly it's, let's say, the microcontroller that's got a ground pad. It's mostly there for low noise. And so it just needs a connection. It doesn't have to have a full... It's not like you're passing current through it. So that, that's why... Or a lot of current, I should say. Like, this is a power device, which is three amps can go through that pad. Probably need to make sure you get enough paste underneath there. I would VM them for sure, though. I think that makes sense in this situation. If I have a captured pad, I'm almost always via and pad just for gas escape. Now, okay, so a question about your layout practices. So take a let's take a processor that's like a 60-something pin QFP. Yeah. Do you like running traces or are you okay with running traces underneath or doing vias underneath the, the part or are you anti that? I am totally against that. Okay. Now, sometimes you have to do it. Like, there's no way around it. But, yeah, if it's a leaded or non-leaded, like a QFN, I 
avoid traces underneath as much as I can. And out of curiosity, why? Uh, mostly because it's it's not really the traces. It's when you have a via. And vias typically, when like they do this, like you'd have to put a solder mask over it underneath the parts or it will short to something. But when you put a solder mask over a via, it makes a little bump, you know? It, mm -hmm. It's proud of the actual solder mask around it. Mm -hmm. No matter what you do, it just builds up there. And that can make it non-complainer. And that's literally the reason is try to make sure that whatever features you have underneath your part. Or as flat as possible. Make it as flat as possible. Because I look at it as a, sure, if you had that stuff underneath it, if you build 100 of them, it's probably going to be fine. You never have to worry about it. It's when you start building tens and hundreds of thousands of something is when that slight bump might become a little more proud on one board. And then now you have a disconnected lead or a uh, lead that can fail in the field. Mm -hmm. and you'll be scratching your head trying to figure out what it is. Right, right. So just try to avoid those kind of problems. Yeah, so I had a design where the board was so small that I, I had to run traces underneath it, and just to be able to escape the pins. The thing that sucked, though, with this one pr uh, processor, this processor had a gigantic pad underneath the part that served no purpose in fact, the data sheet just said connect to ground, but it wasn't like a thermal thing. It was just, I don't know, when they designed the chip, they just picked that one. It didn't serve a purpose. So the part that really sucked about that is you had to make sure that the solder mask covered those vias and covered them well because you had a ton of conducting stuff underneath it that could end up shorting to the bottom of the IC. That was annoying. Yeah, I can even imagine like in the, Let's say even like 15 years down the road now. I mean, most people don't even design electronics last four years, let alone 15. But like the solder mask starts to like fail. So it starts to crack a bit, like micro crack. And then you get a little moisture in there. Now you've got a connectivity between that via and that ground pad. Yeah, that's annoying. I don't like that. What, one thing with uh, working at Space Company now, you start to have to think about things that matter in space but don't matter around here. You can't cap vias in space, or at least you can't cap both sides of the board because what happens when you cap both sides of a via in a vacuum? It can explode. Yeah, it wants right? to escape. Yeah. <laughs> it wants to escape. And if that via is underneath an IC and it wants to escape that way, that's no bueno, right? Yeah. I never thought about that way. I, I thought about that when that happens if a board isn't properly washed when it's manufactured and it gets tinted like the solder mask tints over it and you run it through your reflow oven because i've seen this before is like the vias like literally explode <laughs> yeah they pop because there's like a chem basically there's like a solvent that's still inside the barrels and it boils yeah that's a lot of fun to be like the run gets done and you look at it and you're like oh the board house screwed us <laughs> how would you even catch that it you have to run the first board and then check it for it and just do an inspection yeah yeah do an inspection on that particular failure but okay again another thing with, with space that i've been privy to now is like even running one board could be very very expensive yeah. so how do you capture these things before even that like is there a way to visually inspect it and be like ah there's 
something waiting to explode inside these vias. Yeah, I don't know about that one. Yeah. Mm. I think it's you uh, go up in in vendor market on your PCB. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that sure. Yeah, I guess the the level of quality uh, that comes with that. Well, because if you're paying that much, you're probably paying for aerospace level PCBs. Oh yeah, not consumer grade PCBs. Right. Yeah. So that's that's how it gets caught. Is they have better process controls over their their PCB manufacturing process. And uh, I can that in theory allow it to not happen. <laughs> I, I can tell you the quality department of where I work now. They are sticklers. Like when a board comes in, they inspect every inch of it. And it like you could have the smallest little anything that's under solder mask, even if it doesn't actually matter, even if it's not required to matter, they will take a picture and they will hit up the board house and be like, you did this. This is not cool. Like they are, they are rough. Yeah. I think we were talking about that once because I was sharing some photos with you. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, our quality department would hit that. And I'd be like, I, I would have responded with, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, this quality department would be like, okay, cool. We're not using you again. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a good thing. I'm not saying this is bad. It's just, it's, it's different from what I've, experienced in the past let's just put it that way yeah I, I i think it's silly to call out stuff like that that is not against the whatever specification that you're building now if it's against the specification yes you need to call it out and get it fixed or change houses or whatever but i mean it's like going outside and you see a red car and you go that's a red car i don't like it and but there's nothing wrong with that red car existing there well, I mean, I, that, that's maybe that's a little extreme. Uh, it's not saying I dislike this. It's I don't know. It's more like you get your car detailed and you paid a bunch of money for it getting detailed, and they missed a little speck or something like that, and you call it out. Be like, you said you were going to detail this, and th I see a speck. You know, it's more like that. Yeah, but but no, no, that's not the same either. Because if if you're if in the contract for detailing says there needs to be a no spec thing and there's a spec, then that's against the standard. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, but there's a quote defect. That's totally okay by the standard and you call it out. All you do, I, I call that is you're just making noise. You're just, you're just causing more work to be done. <laughs> well, maybe we'll disagree on this one. Yeah, I guess so. I view it as you're just creating more work for no reason. Because there's, what's the boardhouse going to do? It's like we built it to whatever spec you told us to build it, and it's built that way. Well, okay, so I have actually seen a the a boardhouse that we used recently create things that were flat out not to spec, like full on actual issues. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like I, I saw a boardhouse plate over issues. That it's like, whoa, this should not have gone to plating. Yeah, that's... And it's obvious <laughs> this should not have gone something? to... Oh, yeah, they're totally, yeah. And it's like, come on, guys, you didn't see that? <laughs> and we paid yeah. how much for these boards? Yeah, so no, I agree there. But I'm saying there's stuff like, we were talking about earlier, like a little speck over, uh, that's got silk screened over. Mm -hmm. oh, no, solder masked over. Right, right. And depending on what classification boards 
built to, that's totally okay. There's probably a grade that that is not okay with. But if you built it to one of the ones that's okay with, calling it out, all that does is, one, actually just make the other company kind of annoyed because now they have to go do a... They have to go build a report that says, we're not going to do anything about this because it's not it's okay. That's literally what they do on their end. Well, I don't know. I think there there is a little bit of value of pointing something out saying like, hey, maybe in this situation, it's acceptable for us to use this board, but it's a process indicator and maybe you didn't catch that. So maybe it's useful for the the board house to be like, oh, okay, I see that. I need to go do something about it. Even though the boards are still acceptable. I think that quality department is trying to justify their job. No. <laughs> <laughs> By creating a lot of busy work. Nah, trust me. We need to have three reports a day to meet our quota. <laughs> Only three? Jeez. That's on the low end. <laughs> <sighs> so, yeah, the uh, the chip of the week. Thank you, Mobius Striptease, going back to that, uh, for, for starting the chip of the week. I love the idea. We, we had been doing it on the podcast, God, a long time ago. And I think it would be really fun to continue that, but on the Discord. So if, first of all, go join our community and uh, and then comment and uh, be a part of the chip of the week. Yeah. And that's uh, circuit-break.macrofab.com. All right, let's talk about some projects. So tell us about the World Destroyer. Okay, uh, so the, <laughs> the World Destroyer, I, I actually got something functioning with it, which is exciting because it, it was this, this whole project was kind of like a, I don't know if it's going to work. It's more about just trying it out. And one of the reasons why I didn't know if it was going to work is because I don't actually have the schematic to my welder. There's just a bit of guessing of what the welder can actually do with its foot switch. There is a standard for the foot switch out in terms of what pins go to what, but how the welder actually utilizes those pins can change from uh, device to device. So I tried hooking up this analog circuit that I designed for the weld destroyer and quickly realized that the foot switch is not capable of sourcing much current at all. And that was one of the things I feared that I suppose I could have just hooked up some kind of a load to it and checked it a while ago, but I don't know. It was more fun to design a circuit. So I went and did that. (laughs) So that's really not going to work. Technically I could probably kludge it to work, but not in any kind of like really controllable way. So I hooked up the circuit to it and uh, my welder outputs five volts to the potentiometer that's in the foot controller. But any amount of current that you draw from it really drops the voltage. So it has some kind of impedance in line with whatever that that pin is. It's not actually intended to output any current. And uh, the potentiometer that are in weld foot controllers is usually around 50K. So... I guess that's what they expected to source five volts across 50 K. You know, I bet actually there's probably a resistor in series inside. Yep. To prevent a short circuit from dumping a ton of current into whatever. That's exactly what I expect too. And that resistor is also probably there to help set the voltage to five volts, you know? So it, I don't know, maybe it's seven volts above that resistor. It's literally or a voltage divider in there. 
Yeah, yeah, I would not. It would not yeah, surprise me. Yeah, they just said it such that that resistance plus the 50k that's in a foot controller equals five volts. And so my whole original idea was not going to work. So I just decided, you know what? Let's can that idea and just try an Arduino solution because that's really, really easy to get something going. And so I just whipped up an Arduino circuit that with a single button press puts out a variable pulse width that you can select. Right now, I just have it hard-coded for like 100 milliseconds, but eventually I want to add a potentiometer to it that the Arduino reads and then adjusts some amount. I need to play around with the values because I don't know what my welder's actually capable of, but I was able to get my welder to do 100 milliseconds, 100 amp pulse. Now, I don't actually know if 100 amps came out of the thing. I don't know if it can ramp up to 100 amps that fast. I suppose it would be fun to get like a a current probe and put it on the ground strap and see, did 100 amps actually flow in 100 milliseconds? But regardless, I had I had my... I wonder if you could do that with like a, a oscilloscope. Is that, that might be the only way to, yeah, to capture an event that quickly. Yeah, no, it would have to be a, a scope with a current probe, basically, mm-hmm. on that, which I don't have, and I don't want to invest in one just to find out, you know? Because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, basically, I it, it's just like with regular TIG welding, the actual amperage doesn't really matter. I mean, it does. You need to set it properly, but you have a foot controller, so you can give it more or less, and you do it based off of the weld, what the weld's telling you to do, you give it more or less, right? And so I don't necessarily have to make sure that it exactly hits 100 amps or whatever I have it set to. It's just, I can always just tweak it until I get exactly what I want. So so I got this Arduino that basically it just puts an output pulse to, I just have a low small signal MOSFET that shorts two pins on the foot controller. And those two pins it's shorting are the pins that the normal push button TIG controller goes to. And the thing about it is, I don't know if the, well, actually I do know those pins don't beep out to ground anywhere. They just like, I don't know what they go to. So I just hooked a MOSFET between those. I can tell, actually I can't even tell which one is, I don't know, higher or lower than the other. I just hooked the the FET to it and it worked. So I know which (laughs) pin to go to. (laughs) And and You got lucky on the polarity the first try. I got lucky on the polarity. So yeah, and I know that sounds like pretty goofy to handle it that way. But I tried finding a ground that I could beep to anywhere on the machine. It doesn't beep to any ground. So there's some impedance in line with all of this. So basically, I'm assuming there's just a resistor that goes to ground ground through one of those pins. I I guess I found the right polarity. Regardless, it seems to work. I can press the button and I can just blast things with this. The next thing I want to do is figure out what's the minimum and maximum pulse width that actually makes sense and works with this. Because I did set it for a one millisecond pulse and I would press it and the welder just wouldn't respond to it. I guess that's just too fast. It can't actually like activate the high frequency circuit, but a hundred milliseconds did work. Uh, no, it's probably under the debounce of one of the hardware is in there. Yeah, possibly. Cause I think it's actually a relay. Yeah. 
So the relay, ha- uh, you know, what's what's the fastest a relay goes? Uh, you know, a handful of milliseconds, right? Maybe ten to thirty milliseconds would be like the fastest that some off-the-shelf relay is going to do inside of this thing. So that might set what my minimum time is that I can go with this. Oh, you're talking about on the actual like activating the high current. Correct. Yeah, I think it. Are you sure it's a relay? You think those would just be really chunky, like solid state stuff? Well, I could be wrong. I think it's a relay because I hear something click when I press the button inside mm. of it. So it sounds like a relay. Big old contactor. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to do a contactor at a hundred milliseconds or faster. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean it worked. I think it's also current. Uh, I think current matters because I tried doing it at like. 10 amps and it didn't seem to want to start. So I did it at a hundred amps and it had no problem doing it. In fact, there's a gif that I put up on the, uh, the circuit break community. And I mean, when you press the button, it explodes, which is basically exactly what I wanted it to Ex- explodes is in like the, the weld actually took place. It's very, very much on the surface. It created an arc of plasma and yeah. melted the metal together. And the thing that's crazy is you could press the button, it blasted out, and then you can immediately put your finger on it. And so it's doing what I wanted to. It's cold welding. Cold as in it doesn't actually heat up the the weld enough to actually heat it up. It doesn't heat soak. Yeah, right. So what's cool about this is the circuit's basically done. The only thing that I'm not really sure about... So I wrote a debounce algorithm in the uh, in in Arduino to just handle the button press I need to fine tune that for the actual button I want to use because the cable length is going to be a lot longer than the one I was just building a little simple circuit with but I think you know that's just adjusting delay times in a uh, in the algorithm and um I don't want to use a full like Arduino Uno I think I'll I'm just going to pick up a Nano and 3D print a little case for it because its entire life is just waiting for a button press and then outputting a pulse that's based off of the setting of a potentiometer. The Well, the pulse width. And it's a single pulse. It may be fun to try something that you can press it once and it may be blast three times or maybe five times or something like that. Uh, so you can hit a weld multiple times. I don't know. I, like I, I just, once I have the actual thing thrown together, I can play with ideas like that. You're making a stomp pedal for or an effects pedal for your welder that's not a bad idea to put it in a stomp pedal enclosure yeah with a little momentary switch oh that's a great idea Hmm, because i was gonna do it where it was just i use my finger controller so it would be on the torch itself and you just tap it with your finger and then it does it Hmm, i kind of like that too i don't i don't want to feature creep it (laughs) i like it on the feet because that way you can hold whatever you're you can use two hands to hold whatever you're doing now. And you don't and you can position your because you're just doing tack up work with this tool. Correct. So the least movement you can do, because I'm I'm envisioning this as a, something that I'd like to build for my TIG welder for when I'm like putting together exhaust for cars. Yeah. Uh, because you're trying to hold two round objects, you know, two cylinders in the right clock, right? Yeah. And then, so you're trying to hold those together and like one's bolted to the engine, the other one's like four feet long, kind of dangling and you're upside down trying to make a tack. You know, actually, I'm going to feature creep this some more. What if it was a timer too? 
So you can click the button and it goes, it's like a camera. It goes beep, 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 beep. Because <laughs> sometimes like a foot pedal might be too hard to use. And so you can use the one on your torch. But you know, when you, I've always had a big problem with, with the trigger on the torch. Because mm-hmm. when I use it, I move the torch when I click it. I, I kind of like the idea of being able to just take the torch and chuck it up in a vice. And then you can just move the part around and you click the button with your foot, right? I never thought about that, but yeah, you could totally do that, I guess. That's not a bad idea for like doing, um, like you were saying, exhaust, where the geometry is complex and you have a lot of curves. I'm imagining now like you slip and now your plasma beam becomes like two inches as it goes, (laughs) as it starts like arcing around your metal. It does that normally when I TIG weld. <laughs> when I when I slip and the torch moves. Moves, uh, yeah. Okay, I also like the idea. Here's a feature creep. Luckily, it's Arduino, so it's easy. If you had it in a foot switch, one button press could give you a blast where the pulse width is set by a pot. Or you could press and hold it and it would tick, like it would do that blast once a second or once every five seconds or something like that. Such that yeah. you could you could just hold it and keep moving. Well, you would have another knob that adjusts that. Yeah, exactly. So two knobs, one that is one that is the pulse width and one that is the frequency of the, the pulses. I like that idea because then, yeah, if you that really frees up both of your hands to kind of maneuver it and tack it. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking because all the TIG welders out there are just face palming right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's pretty cool. And and it's kind of serendipitous because uh last weekend I brewed a batch of beer and um I realized that my rig is now basically in need of some good solid repair. I I have run with it for five years or so now without doing much maintenance on it. And it sprung a leak in one area that was basically, there's an O-ring that is uh, that seals off around one of my sight glasses that I have coming off of the side of one of my pots. And that O-ring just bit the dust and it just started leaking like crazy. Oh, no. And the thing is, I have like seven gallons of boiling hot liquid and I'm trying to like reseat a thing while there's liquid in it and there's just no way to do that well. And so I found, I got a solution. I probably lost, I don't know, maybe a pint worth of the stuff. So it wasn't catastrophic, but it's also like, it's, I'm realizing that the, the, the rig is out of commission now until I do maintenance to it. And typically I have done like deep cleans on it every spring it gets shut down in the winter just because winter's harder to brew in. But, uh, I think now uh, it's like, okay, I got to do a little bit more heavy maintenance. And the whole purpose of the weld destroyer was to be able to do some tack up stuff on really thin sheet metal for the, Mm -hmm. for the, the brew rig. So I think it's serendipitous. I think it works out well. So really the next steps with the, the weld destroyer is to, get a 3d printed case that holds a nano. But one thing we didn't discuss is because my welder can't supply power to it, the thing has to be powered somehow else. And I'm just thinking, I'm just going to go with a battery. I'll throw a battery in it because an Arduino doesn't pull a whole lot of juice. So I could honestly throw a nine volt battery with a little power switch on it and it'll last a long time. 
Or if I wanted to get kind of fancy, I guess I could do a pair of, what are they, 18650 cells and like a charger on there. I might just go with a 9-volt battery because you could just plug it basically directly into the Arduino and there you go. It's done. And a 9-volt battery is like the size of an Arduino Nano. So the case isn't going to be that big for the pair of those two things. So Mm -hmm. I'm probably just going to go that way. I just don't want to feature creep this to the point that it doesn't get done. And it would be really easy for me to give it to you, Parker, and then you can make one yeah, uh, yeah. and see if it works with yours. You'll just have to guess on the polarity of the switch in here. Yeah, and just get lucky. And just get lucky. I guess it might just not work the other way around. I don't know if it would cause any damage. It's just the FET might not be biased properly or or biased backwards. I don't think it's going to damage it because the environment these are in, I think they're kind of designed if, like, you drop a big old piece of steel on the cable and it sliced it and shorted it out, it shouldn't kill it. Yeah. And also probably shouldn't activate the torch (laughs) at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. That's Yeah, that's a good point. So that's actually probably why you can't pull a lot of power off that 5-volt line. Yeah, yeah, there's some safety in there. I bet you it's set to something small, like 5 milliamps or less. Yeah. You know, I I would... uh, I've got my 3D printer here, which is actually the bed's probably big enough to pull this off, but it would be fun if I give you the uh, the design for it. I'd love to see what that bamboo you have could do for a case like this. Oh, yeah, yeah. I thought you were going to build in a stomp pedal, though. Yes, maybe. I don't know. Because um, the, the, bo- the controller itself doesn't have to be the, the, like the box can be separate from the controller. That's true. So I don't know. Yeah. But if it was in, uh, if it was a stop box, it could just all be one thing. Yeah. And then make them so you can have nine volt batteries in them. Yeah. That might be the way to go. And I already have stop box enclosures lying around and I already have momentary switches lying around. The only thing I don't have is an Arduino Nano to pull this off. I've got some, but it's probably cheaper for you just to buy one than to ship it. <laughs> yeah. In fact, <laughs> let me, I'll just go buy one right now. All right, so what's up with the what's up with your projects? All right, so we were talking a little bit last week about the uh, box truck and the the batteries and that kind of stuff. So I actually I have all the shore power actually wired up and the box truck is connected to my house right now. Oh, nice. I built this like AC selector panel and I got it all wired up. I cut the panel out so I can mount this 3D printed panel I made. I don't think we talked about the breaker too much. So I got a ELCI 30 amp breaker. It stands for like, was it electric limit current something? It's basically a GFCI, a ground fault interrupts. So basically you pass the load wires through a coil on the back. And if it detects an imbalance, it trips the breaker. I don't know what the exact terminology differences between ELCI and a GFCI. From what I can tell, they do the same thing, but they have different trip settings. Like a GFCI here in the States is set to 5 milliamps, where an ELCI is 30 milliamps. So if it detects 30 milliamps of the imbalance, it'll trip, whereas a, the GFCI in your bathroom is 5. I think that number actually used to be 10 until couple years ago and they changed it to, anyways and that part number so i went online and 
there's a couple different companies that will re that sell these kind of breakers, but I actually went and just found the OEM and just bought from them because it's a it's Carling Technologies. They build a lot of these like high DC breakers, a uh, high DC voltage, just to say, uh, breakers and that kind of stuff. And uh, this one is the PBD dash X zero dash twenty one dash eight zero two dash five AE dash EI. And if you just search that part number, you can get this breaker for like $10 cheaper than from all the other resellers. So that's cool. And when you're buying like 20 breakers, yeah, that's 200 bucks you get to save. So it's definitely the way to go. Because you can buy these from like Mauser and, well, Mauser DigiKey usually don't keep these in stock, but they have other ones that are very similar that are in stock. And then I set up, so like on my selector switch for my shore power, I set up some, uh, reverse polarity LED indicators. And you might be thinking, oh, it's AC current, Parker. There is no reverse polarity. Yet there is, especially when you start talking about how the ground is wired and if it's neutral bonded or not. And so basically the big thing is, it, let's say you plugged into a plug, your truck into a plug or your boat into a plug and hot and neutral are swapped. Well, on your boat, basically a ground fault won't work correctly on your boat now. So you want to be able to detect, hey, is my polarity messed up when I plug in? And so I, I put, so basically what that is, is you you put the uh, one leg of your LED over on the uh, neutral and the other on the ground. And if everything is all nice and good, those should have no potential difference because they're bonded in your electrical panel, wherever that is in your house or at the RV park or whatever. But if it's, flipped, then your neutral in your box truck, for this example, becomes the hot side. And now you have an imbalance. You actually have a voltage potential across your your uh, ground and neutral line. And uh, the LED will light up. What's also interesting I found is if you don't use a big enough extension cord, it lights up because you make a voltage differential <laughs> with the voltage <laughs> drop. <laughs> So it also tells you if you're overloading your electrical lines. I had to get a bigger extension cord. My little tiny like extension cord that I run like Christmas tree lights on did not like having 16 amps being pulled over it at 120 volts. So that was fun. <laughs> had to go get the uh, big industrial cords. The big chunky guys. Oh yeah, the ones that are like 12 gauge instead of uh, 16, basically. <laughs> So yeah, I got it all wired up. Uh, it's charging. It's only it's actually been charged for a couple of days now. And so the next step is to basically put in all the circuit panels, circuit breaker panels for the um, DC side and AC side, like past the inverter. So I'm going to have a 48 volt rail. I'm going to have a 12 volt rail, and then I'm going to have a 120 volt AC rail that comes off the inverter. And so I got to design those panels. And I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to 3D print them out and then just mount them, you know, cut them out on the metal panel and mount those plastic panels in. And then I'll just make blanking plates for all the uh, spots I won't use. How long does it take to charge? Let's see. It was charging the batteries at 30 amps on 48 volts, and they were half charged. And, I mean, it's just simple. So it was like I charged 5,000 kilowatt hours at 30 amps 
it took three and a half hours to charge. Now you can up that number. I think you can max, you can charge those uh, through the inverter on the 48 volt rail at a max of 80 amps. I just have it set to 30 right now. And you can change like per source, how much amperage. Now, what I really want to figure out is depending on, I, I want to know, have a way where I can switch how much power I pull off shore power. Cause like what I just did now is I just plugged it into like a normal 15 amp 120 volt socket where, you know, maximum you can pull is 15 amps. And so I definitely need a way to be able to easily change it from 15 amps to 50 amps, right? Because all the, all the wiring is set up to draw 50, even though I think the inverter max is going to be 30 amp input. I think it's the max that it will pull over shore power. But I set everything up for 50, just in case. You never know. <laughs> so what's next? Is it running power through the ceiling? Well, no, the breaker panel side. So setting up the rails to then do that part. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying like on the whole project side. Doing those panels and those rails and then putting the solar panels on. Hmm. So I'm still waiting on getting the extrusion in. I, you know, I probably should call that company up and see if that's arrived yet. They didn't have it in stock? Not the uh, 1030. Oh, okay. They had the 1020 in stock, but the 1030 they had to order. So they said it would take a month, and it's been about a month now. Cool. So I probably need to just call them and be like, hey, did it arrive yet? And you got it all pre-cut, right? No, I am not getting it all pre-cut. Oh, okay. I thought you were going that route. No, because the width, like the the width span, I don't exactly know how wide that is until I bolt the panels up and then actually measure it. Ah, I got it. So, Luckily, it's really easy to cut. Yeah, I'm just going to cut on the table saw. <laughs> Super easy. Yeah, that's that project. We got a couple more projects that we're working on, but we'll save those for later. We'll save them for, you know what? If you actually want to know about these other projects sooner, go sign up to our discourse, circuit-break.macfab.com and go see our threads about them and comment and tell us, you know, not to build them certain ways or whatever, whatever people do on forums. Tell us we're dumb. <laughs> <laughs> no, we just make poor educated decisions. I like that. Poor educated decisions, like hooking up MOSFETs yeah. into welders and just hoping that it works. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> and it did. And it did work. Yeah. So thank you for listening to Circuit Break from Macrofab. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. So long for now. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer with no O's, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Circuit Break community discourse hub at circuit-break.macfab.com. <laughs>